Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I hope you had an inspiring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. We have two engaging interviews tonight. Sit back and relax, and let's begin. And good evening, I'm Clarence Boone. Dr. King identified the three evils of racism, poverty, and militarism as being the most pressing issues during the latter part of his life. Also, why is there a disconnect between King's legacy and the youth today? And what are ways to get the youth involved in living King's dream? And finally, what is the role and responsibility of education, business, government, and religious groups to engage their institutions and the public in the principles of social justice King stood for? Here to help us answer these questions is Dr. Khalid L. Hakim. Did I say that correct? Yes. All right, thank you. Uh, today's City Bloomington Martin Luther King keynote speaker. He is founder and curator of the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, a collection of over 7,000 original artifacts of Black memorabilia dating from the transatlantic slave trade era to the hip hop culture, who will speak on the truth hurts Black history and healing the racial divide. Dr. Ella King, welcome to Bring It On. And I watched your uh, presentation at the Columbus Metropoli Metropolitan Club that you yes. did August the 26, 2020, and I was riveted. It was fascinating, and uh, I wish I had known about it so I could have been there. Thank well, you. Thank you for coming on. Well, well, on that note, for those uh, who are tuned in, it still is not too late for you to quickly RSVP uh, to see Dr. El Hakim at 7 p.m. tonight. Uh, this will be at the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday celebration, uh, where the theme again, the truth hurts, black history and healing, the racial divide. And this will take place um, online virtually this year. And to register, go to https colon slash slash tinyurl.com. And that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com slash MLK celebration 2021 RSVP. Well, uh, if I may call it, if, if that's okay, Yes. Uh, I just want to thank you for joining us. You're a man with a busy schedule. We don't have a lot of time, so we'll expedite this. Uh, those three questions posed by Dr. King, your reflection on the three evils of racism, poverty, and militarism. If you can give us an observation on that, and, and then from there we'll move into other areas, especially I want to talk about that, that mobile Black History Museum that you've put together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, in 1967, um, you know, this is several years after the um, March on Washington, and uh, a lot of people know King's legacy through a very narrow uh, viewpoint. And, and mainly we get King via the I Have a Dream speech and the letter um, from the Birmingham jail. And a lot of people don't know a, a whole lot about King from 63 up until the end of his life. So in 1967, he gives um, a speech in New York where he identifies the three evils um, being racism, poverty, and militarism. Um, and and when, I, when I think about those three uh, three evils um, from a 2021 standpoint, we realize that a lot of things have not changed over time. We know the, the um, Kerner report um, 
that came out in 1967 also identified white racism as being one of the main uh, reasons, the number one reason for uh, the riots that were going on um, during that time. So when we look at America today and we see what's going on um, in the country right now, um, you know, racism is still, you know, number one on, you know, on uh, uh, one, one of the number one uh, problems and issues that we have. Um, and when we see, um, if we look at D.C. today and we see um, the, the military uh, presence in D.C. Uh, represents that that uh, that issue, you know, that, that we have in this conversation right now about how much racism has permeate, permeated um, in the law enforcement um, agencies around the country, as well as um, in some aspects of the military. Um, and these are some questions that we have to start asking uh, because of you know, the militias that we see out um, who are in military gear and military trained. And um, so we, you know, we, we have to start having some conversations and, and identifying uh, some of the, the roots of, of uh, these ideologies and how uh, they're affecting and threatening the American democracy right now. And then of course, poverty too. Um, uh, the current report um, also mentioned that, um, and they did an up-to-date version just a few years ago, that even things in, in terms of you know, black ho home ownership has not changed at all from 1968 up until current times. So um, you know, we, we have to deal with this issue of poverty and homelessness and um, other aspects of, of uh, our society. And then also poverty is not just limited to finance, finances. Poverty, poverty also looks at the standard of, of, of uh, the inferiority of, of, um, of morality and spiritual aspects of society too. So we're, we're impoverished in other ways than just financial too. So um, there's a lot of questions that, that we have to bring to the table and have discussions about in terms of these three evils right now. Well, uh, you had mentioned uh, uh, poverty and I associate that with entrepreneurship. Yes. And I had always had in my mind that uh, desegregation helped but hurt in the ways of entrepreneurship. It wasn't until I saw your uh, segment at the Columbus Metropolitan Club that you talked about hip hop, which is part of your one-on-one -on -one museum as uh, promoting entrepreneurship. And I never thought of it that way. And you, you mentioned all of the jobs that were created due to hip hop. I was just fascinated by, by that. Can you go into that more and explain that to our listening audience? Absolutely. So hip hop as a culture, there's, there's uh, five elements to the culture. You have the DJ, you have the MC, you have the graffiti artist, you have the break dancers, and then the fifth element of hip hop is knowledge of self. So the idea of that knowledge, bringing those four other um, elements of hip hop culture together is very, very important to hip hop culture. But hip hop culture has provided avenues uh, for many of us to um, make money and, and take care of ourselves. So early on in hip hop culture, when you had parties, when you have parties, you have to have people who promote the parties. So you have promoters, you have people who have to make the flyers. You have you have DJs and DJ equipment that has to be rented out. You have um, you have the MCs that you know have to be paid. You know, it's, so it's so many aspects to this culture. But as it grew, um, the different industries within the culture also grew as well. So um, a lot of people don't recognize photography, for example, being a part of that culture. People who took photographs um, early on. Um, uh, the pro the promo photos for for artists that was a job that you know hip hop provided for certain people. There's um one of my mentors. His name is Ernie Panicoli. He's one of uh, hip hop's most famous uh, hip hop photographers, and he's been documenting hip hop for the past forty years. But his job for many years was being the chief photographer for Word Up magazine. And um so you know a lot of people don't think about um you know photography being a, a, a avenue for for uh, entrepreneurship. 
or magazines. <clears throat> and there's so many publications that have come out that's focused on hip hop. And so you create, so there's a whole new area of hip hop journalism that was created. So you have to have people who are in PR, people who are reporters. Um, I recently founded um, the Michigan Hip Hop Archive. So in the Michigan Hip Hop Archive, we're specifically collecting the material uh, culture of hip hop in Michigan. And it's not until I started uh, looking at it through that lens that you recognize the uh, radio, uh, the radio personalities, the the um, online radio formats that started because of hip hop. Um, and just you know, just offers so many different types of of, of ways to to uh, become an entrepreneur. Another another big thing is fashion, right? So fashion, uh, uh, there's so many designers that came up through the ranks um, as um, uh, through through uh, hip hop culture who have made a huge impact not only on fashion um, uh, nationally in America, but that impact has been felt globally. So there, there's many different type of areas where hip hop um, has has created avenues in terms of entrepreneurship for people. You know, that it does answer one of Dr. King's questions. Mm -hmm. um, how do we involve the youth today, both in his legacy and in some form of positive activism? And right. you're speaking the language that a lot of them speak. But then there's this sort of middle-aged group that does remember hip hop, but maybe have they shifted to something else. How do you, how do you, how do you propose we reach out to them that are now in their professional careers and maybe starting a family? Uh, how, how can we reach them? Well, I mean, you know, hip hop has, has grown and matured over the years, right? So uh -huh. we're we're at a point in time. I, I just turned fifty last year. Uh, Dr. Dre uh, from NWA is is I think fifty five now. Yeah. Uh, we have elders now in hip hop culture. So um, Public Enemy, for example, um, Flavor Flav is 62, 61. Um, Professor Griffin, Chuck D are 60 now. So they're grandparents and, you know, so um, hip hop culture is that age now, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so um, I, would, I would suggest and in, 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 in say that, you know, we broaden and understand how wide hip hop culture is in terms of generations now. So we, we have literally maybe three or four generations now of hip hop culture. Um, but, I, but I believe like one of the challenges is, is that we have to we have to reach back as elders and have conversations with with our with our young people. I mean, and, and a part of that is just being engaged um, with them and, and, and talking to them and spending time uh, with them. Um, I, I think of um, right before hip hop, um, that movement, you had the black arts movement right. and you had people like Amiri Baraka and Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni and uh, the last poets. Um, and people like Marvin X and, and Sam Greenlee, um, and they and all of them took it upon themselves to connect to hip hop culture. So they had relationships with you know everybody from Tupac to um, Biggie and you know um, because you know hip hop artists they were sampling the work of you know the last poets and and, and were inspired by Nicki Giovanni. And as a matter of fact, Nicki Giovanni has a tattoo of Tupac on her, you know, and you know she, she's one of our elders. So you know that that bridge there. Says, says a whole lot that, that she's acknowledged on a very, very deep way um, the, the contributions of somebody like a Tupac Shakur. So, uh, but I think a, a lot of it has to do with us taking time in uh, making those connections intentionally to build bridges with our young people. Uh, I have a question. Uh, how does hip hop connect across racial lines? How's that gonna help racially? Well, it's always happened. It's, it's, um, hip hop has always crossed racial lines from very, very early on. It was, um, multiracial, although it started uh, in the Bronx and is very much a, um, a, 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 a culture that started off in the black community and the black experience. But hip hop is very unique as a culture because it's always um, offered people the opportunity to come and participate 
within the culture as long as you're being your authentic self, right? So it doesn't matter you know, what, what, what um, racial background that you're part of, as long as you come into that space and respecting it and bringing your authentic self to the space, if you are MC and you're a white MC, people are gonna respect you based upon your skill set. So for example, uh, when the Beastie Boys came out, there was no question about what level or type of skill set that they had. People appreciated no matter what your racial background was. You know, it became, race probably became an issue when somebody like a, a Vanilla Ice jumped up on the scene and he wasn't being authentic. But without a doubt, uh, someone like, like the Beastie Boys or someone like a, even Eminem in terms of his uh, lyrical skill, people might not agree with the content, but there's no question about um, his, his uh, uh, skill as a wordsmith. There's no question about that. But it's always rich beyond racial background and international background. So um, as long as you step into that space and you have, have um, a strong skill set, whether or not you're a DJ or, uh, or a break dancer or B-boy, B-girl or a graffiti artist, uh, whatever you bring into that space, there's, uh, people don't trip on uh, your racial background. And that's one of, the, one of the great things about the culture is that uh, it's very accepting and inclusive as long as you respect the culture. You, you know, hip hop started as, as you said earlier, uh, informing the world about their current condition and the state of mind and the communities that they come from, the challenges that they confront. Uh, in this day and age, we see the resurgence of say, uh, white nationalism, uh, white supremacy. How can they, should the message of course change, but in what ways do you see the message changing to counteract or to draw attention to, or to educate the black community as far as, hey, we gotta wake up. What do you think about that? Well, hip hop has always had that, that, that um, element in it from very early on. When, when I think of, of early socially and politically conscious songs, I think of uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's The Message, which identified those very, very serious um, issues within the black community you know, and, and really put, put in, uh, putting a mirror up to society and saying, this is what it is. And hip hop has, been, um, has used its genius to do that. Uh, I also think of Public Enemy's work. You know, uh, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. I mean that that album is is a, is a classic, and if you if you listen to that album, you'll hear very um, distinctly um, act them telling you exactly what uh, white supremacy is, how we should respond to it, um, and inviting people to engage in this um, uh, protracted struggle um, that we need to be in to address those types of issues. I also think of of uh, N.W.A. when they came out and how they responded. Um, initially to police brutality. And we know that police, police brutality has been a deep thing going all the way back, you know, really to, to the plantations, you know, with, with the slave catchers. But in a, con a contemporary sense, um, uh, uh, NWA, they're, they're speaking out against police brutality with, with at the police. I mean, that very, you know, that was, that hit really, really hard. And it hit hard with, with me in Detroit because that was, I mean, we knew about police brutality in Detroit. That was a part of our, our, our experience. And, it, and that's one of the reasons why it resonated so widely around the country and why, why young black men and women um, responded to it as such. And it's also is a throwback to 1966 when the uh, Black Panther Party in uh, Oakland, California also developed. You know, so a lot of the old heads were able to respond to that too and, and, and that resonated with people as well. They saw that as a part of that long critique of, of over-policing in the black community. So, so hip hop. So, so hip hop it's important that hip hop um, continues in that that tradition, and, and it and it does and it does today. It does um, at this current point. Do you feel it is given uh, whites permission to use the N word, hip hop? It does not give whites the permission to use hip hop. Whites think it think it's um, think it's okay because they listen to hip hop and because hip hop is so uh, popular, 
um, that gives them permission to do it. But like I tell people often, all, op all oppressed people have accepted language of their oppressor and they have flipped it into words of um, uh, terms of endearment. So if we look at, uh, for example, um, um, women, for example, when women are amongst themselves, and if we're honest, you, you'll hear women use the B word across, you know, uh, amongst themselves. And if we're honest, we'll, we'll, we'll agree to that. And they, they do it as a term of endearment and, and acknowledging their, their bond with each other. I mean, not to say that's right or wrong, but we know that that happens. But if you're outside that community and you step in as a, as a man, if I step into that community and say, you know, call a woman a B, I can expect some type of negative reaction as, as someone not being in that community. Same thing with the LGBT, LGBT, LGBTQ community. If you step into that circle, and we know that if we're honest, they use language amongst themselves that have been used to oppress them and to uh, denigrate them. Um, and it's very ugly language, but they use it within the community them themselves. And if as a heterosexual male, I step into that community and use that language, I can expect something very negative to happen to me if I do that. The same thing, and, and, and the reason why I don't do that amongst any community is because I respect the boundaries of those communities. So someone who steps into hip hop culture and you're a white person or you're non-black and you use that word, that shows me that you don't respect the boundaries of our community. So I would encourage someone who respects hip hop, uh, white people who respect hip hop, that you respect the boundaries of the community and understand the history of oppression and the reason why we use that word. And uh, ideally we don't want to use the word period, but the reality is that it's a, um, the reality is that we do use it. And hip hop is not the only community who's ever used that word. I mean, if we go back prior to hip hop and go back to the black arts movement, we know the last poets used it. We know the Watts prophets used it. We know uh, Amiri Brock used the word and they used it. Uh, we know Gil Scott Heron used it. We know they use it for a very specific purpose. And they were making a distinction between a mindset with the N word and what it meant to be um, uh, to uh, elevate yourself into the mind of a black person. So they made a very uh, uh, huge distinction between the N-word and being black, right? If, if okay. you just uh, tuned in, you're listening to uh, Dr. Kala El-Hakim, today's City of Bloomington's MLK uh, keynote speaker. Uh, he is founder and curator of the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, uh, which is a collection of over 7,000 original artifacts of black memorabilia dating from the trans-Atlantic slave trade era to hip-hop culture, which we've been talking about. Uh, we're going to transition over to that mobile museum, but before we do, uh, a quick observation. When you, when you talk about the impact of hip-hop culture on today's society, it's amazing. I, I watch a lot of MSNBC, and it always gets me that Ari Melber, one of the uh, uh, show hosts that comes on, uh, he quotes lines from hip hop songs yeah. and he's like this aficionado on the history of hip hop. And that, and that's, that's a curious thing to see. And then John Howlman comes on and has a Wu-Tang uh, symbol in the background as he's talking and, and, and not lost on me is that, wow, you know, here are these two talking heads that have been impacted by hip, by hip hop. And it's interesting that uh, they're, they're sending a message and they want to send that message. Motivations, I don't know fully why, but they're doing it. They're doing it. Uh, and I want to shift over now to the Black History 101 Mobile Museum. Uh, time is of the essence. We're sort of getting close to our jump off time. But uh, talk to us about the um, Black History 101 Mobile Museum. Yes, this is um, a project that I, I started. Um, actually, this is the 30th anniversary of me collecting Black memorabilia. Uh, I started collecting as an undergrad at Ferris State University shortly 
after taking a, a social, sociology class with Dr. David Pilgrim. As you know, some of you all know, he was the founder of the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia. But uh, Dr. Pilgrim had a very uh, unique way of introducing the history of uh, racism in America via artifacts. So um, if I can share this with you all real quick. One day, Dr. Pilgrim bought um, an artifact very similar to this into class. And he had us have conversations and interpret the meaning of this object here. And it, it led to such a rich uh, conversation amongst my classmates who are very uh, diverse in background. And uh, many of us had never seen anything like that before. And um, it, it impacted me in a very, very deep way. And shortly after taking his class, I started collecting artifacts like that. Dr. Al-Hakim, you held up uh, an artifact and I'd like to ask you to describe that uh, for our <laughs> listeners who um, don't have the benefit of seeing that firsthand, but that was that was a striking and you know very familiar type image, but describe it, yeah. please. Yeah, so th this is a, a cast iron bank um, and it, it's probably about seven inches high and, and about uh, four or five inches across. It has, it's the image of, of what's supposed to be a black man, but the, uh, the imagery is, is very stereotypic, the stereotypical he almost looks like a monkey. Uh, he has big red lips and bulging eyes. And he has a hand, um, which is a lever of, um, that you put a coin into his hand and you put a lever in the back of it and it puts a coin into his mouth. And on the back of it, uh, it says the Jolly Inward Bank. And this is from the late 1800s. It's a very, very ugly relic of the past. Um, and But as I said, Dr. Pilgrim um, uh, spent a bunch of his life collecting these types of ugly images um, and, and he grew up in, in um, uh, Mobile, Alabama, um, right after the uh, Jim Crow era. So he was exposed to a lot of this stuff early on. And uh, because of that exposure, he took it upon himself to educate the public uh, using what he calls these uh, uh, symbols of intoler intolerance to teach people. And um, this, these are in having actual artifacts, which is the evidence of this era, is a very, very powerful way to engage people into um, learning about this history and you know, in challenging um, the contradictions that we see in society in society now, uh, in terms of these stereotypes that, in many cases, are still around. But uh, again, shortly after taking this class, um, I started to collect that type of memorabilia. And because I was informed by hip hop culture, um, I was able to make a, a, a unique um, connection between hip hop and this type of material. Well, I was truly impressed because I've been a for over 40 some odd years. And so to hear that you turn your collection into uh, a mobile museum, I never thought about that because I pack my stuff up and take it to schools and, and around and repack it and bring it back home. So I really right. like what you've done and I, I thank you for that, uh, for making it mobile and taking it out to the public. You had mentioned in one of your interviews um, about um, in, uh, things missing in schools and that they don't teach this in schools. Would you tell our listening audience what you said, how to get it out there in the schools? So one of, um, so I taught middle school for, for um, 15 years in Detroit. And so one of the things, and in, in most teachers can uh, uh, testify to this as well, one of the challenges that we have as, as teachers when we look at the content in many of these textbooks are the, the, the voices of uh, marginalized people that are missing. Um, so one of the things that we, we find ourselves doing as teachers is going outside of the textbook and trying to find ways to supplement what the textbooks are missing. So as a teacher, this was one of my ways of doing that in, in incorporating um, uh, aspects of black history into the classroom. 
But when I decided to um, do the Black History 101 Mobile Museum full time, um, I started reaching out to different schools around the country and, and um, setting up opportunities to bring this type of material into the school districts. We, we have about three minutes left in this conversation. Um, and I will make note that the Black History 101 Mobile Museum is mobile. And uh, that denotes that you take this around the country, different places to showcase your collection, which is over 7,000 original artifacts. Can you talk about how people can go about trying to schedule you for a visit? And then tell us the range of artifacts. What are they, what type of uh, depictive artifacts do you have? Sure. So in terms of um, booking and scheduling uh, exhibits, you can go to simply go to uh, blackhistorymobilemuseum.com, blackhistorymobilemuseum.com, or you can email me at bhistory101 at yahoo.com, or you actually can call me at 313-645-4197, 313-645-4197. In terms of artifacts in in the collection, um, I think one of the most unique things about the Black History 101 Mobile Museum is the the, art, uh, the artifacts in the collection that are signed by historical uh, figures. So there's a large um, collection within the archive of things that are signed by people such as um, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Huey P. Newton, Angela Davis, um, George Washington Carver, Marcus Garvey, and the list kind of goes on uh, even up to hip hop with people like Chuck D and Queen Latifah and Will Smith and Jay-Z. Um, so it is, is, is very broad in that respect, but it's also uh, photographs, uh, thing, photographs from, from the 1800s up, up into current time. Um, there's magazines, there's newspapers, there's figurines, there's toys. Um, for example, this is, um, yeah, I'm describing here, um, this is a figurine that was produced um, back in the 80s of, of Malcolm X um, standing at a podium. Um, but it's, it's figurines. There's um, recently, um, they put out, a, Barbie put out a Rosa Parks um, Barbie doll that came out last year. But that's something that, you know, is something that's very easily uh, accessible. And, and people ask me all the time, what are you collecting right now? Uh, anything really that has to do with, with black history and things that um, I might consider would be in a museum, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 years from now. So um, I'm always collecting in, in um, uh, positive things and, and the you know, negative uh, aspects of, of, of um, American society. Uh, recently, I was in a, in, in a gun shop and found some bumper stickers that kind of reflect the current times. So this bumper sticker right here reads, uh, integration and a lack of discipline have dumbed down this country. But imagine, you know, someone putting a bumper sticker like this on their car. Or in this case, this one says, all Muslims are not terrorists, but all terrorists may have been Muslim. These types of bumper stickers are being produced by those folks who were the insurgents on January 6th. And finally, this one that says that uh, it's an American flag that says, I don't kneel. So mm-hmm. this type of propaganda that's being pushed through um, these white supremacist groups. And, you know, these folks are not, you know, these folks are, are all around the country right now. And we, we have to be prepared to engage in, in um, addressing this very, very serious issue. Well, uh, you know, I, I hate to cut this conversation off. That's why we have to have you come back. And I will definitely talk to you. I'd like to talk to you more about uh, my collection and and hear about more what's in your collection also. We thoroughly enjoyed our Black History conversation with Dr. Khalil L. Hakeem, City Bloomington's MAK keynote speaker. He is founder and curator of the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, a collection of over 7,000 original artifacts of Black memorabilia 
during the transatlantic slave trade era and to hip hop culture who will speak tonight, the truth hurts black history and healing the racial divide. Uh, Dr. El Hakim, we, we definitely thank you for joining us. And, and as Liz said, we wanna to try to invite you back, hopefully in the month of February, if that's possible. You know, I'll send you an email requesting uh, a particular date. We can, of course, do a pre-record and then air it on a particular Monday in February. But I think it's vital that we continue this for an hour-long conversation if possible. Um, and I just want to alert our listeners to please plan to tune in to his virtual presentation that starts in about 30 minutes. And to register, there's still yet time, I believe. Go to uh, tinyurl, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com slash MLK Celebration 2021 RS. BP. Now we'd like to also invite our listeners to stay tuned for part two of our show. And uh, thank you again, Dr. Khaled El-Hakim for joining us tonight. Thank you. Myers and welcome to Bring It On. Good evening. I'm Cornelius Wright. Amidst all the national raucous with the recent siege on the Capitol building by bands of white supremacists and deranged president who has yet to concede defeat, President-elect Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States in less than 48 hours. Also in a historic milestone, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will become the next Vice President of the United States. As widely known, she will become the first woman of color with African and Indian heritage to serve in this capacity. Donald Trump is the first president to be impeached twice and the first incumbent president to lose a reelection bid since George H.W. Bush in 1992. Notably, Biden received the most votes for president of any candidate in American history. With the Republican Party coming apart at the seams, one wonders if they can unify and conduct a thorough analysis or post-mortem of Trump's loss after he is out of office. One thing is for certain, his shadow over the party is long and no review of Trump's performance is likely to be very hard on him. Here to help us dissect this contentious 2020 presidential election is Democrat strategist Robin Winston an accomplished business leader and skilled political strategist who provides political advice to his colleagues and clients, and of course, our listeners. Mr. Winston made history when he became the first African-American to chair a major political party in the state of Indiana. <clears throat> Along with running the largest minority-owned public relations firm in Indiana, Robin has recently launched Progressive Thought Matters, a nonpartisan 501c4 organization committed to educating the public increasing public participation by previously underrepresented groups and promoting progressive public policy. Joining us this evening as well will be our producers for Bring It On, William Hosea and Clarence Boone. Welcome to the show tonight, Mr. Winston. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me and what a week, what a month. So I'm, I'm sure we'll have just a little bit to talk about on the show. I feel like it's been such a year, but it feels like it's lasted a decade. <laughs> yeah, it's been the longest, longest three. It's been the longest transition that I've ever seen. And it wasn't even extended by any months. It's just been it's been crazy. But that's what happens when certain people lose elections that they never thought they were going to lose. But I mean, according to him, he hasn't lost. 
<laughs> and according to about 5,000 other people that stormed the Capitol, I guess they agree. Um, so it's going to be a wild ride, but, but we're ready for it. And therein lies the plight of the GOP. Um, with the infighting that's going on now with the, tra the traditional GOP members, the Trump loyalists, if you, as you would might call them, or even possibly a, a, a third group within the GOP party, Mr. Winston, where do you see them right now? Well, first call me Robin, and, and uh, where do I see them right now? You know, this presidency, if you think about it, the Trump presidency is sandwiched between an African-American president, Barack Obama, on one end, and soon to be an African-American vice president, first female ever elected on the other end. So in between, we had four years of Donald Trump. The interesting vote will be when the Senate moves on the impeachment hearing, but the more important vote, it only takes a majority for this vote to happen, and that is if they make a vote that would prevent him from running for future federal office. I see that having the biggest impact on the future of the Republican Party. And the irony is you've got people like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, and others, who Rick Scott, who are all thinking about running for president, having a chance to go, hmm, if I vote to make sure he can't run again, he won't be able to run again in 24. He won't be able to run against me. And I think that puts them in a, in a little bit of a tailspin. You know, this guy, this guy could have proclaimed victory election night, except, you know, he's the only one that didn't get to ride the pony at Meyer. Everybody else got a chance. Everybody won. They won the Senate. They run Congress. They won governor's races. But when it came down to benchmarking him, a guy whose background in business has always been marketing, when they did the customer survey, they came back and said they didn't want that particular brand. They didn't want that particular product. So if you look at it, and I'm if you look at it, the guy takes office with Paul Ryan as speaker, McConnell as majority leader. He leaves office with Nancy Pelosi as speaker and Chuck Schumer as majority leader and himself not in the White House. They lost seats in 18, overwhelming numbers. They lost, in, I mean, 80 some million people voted for Joe Biden. So look at the substantial numbers of votes that Joe Biden got. So I think, I think um, you know, you're talking about a president that, that probably has no reason to say he's made it he's made the future of the Republican Party. In fact, I think the Republican Party's in a tailspin because of him. But I mean, Robin, don't you think that when you look, even if Trump is impeached, um, and you know, you said that, you know, you think the party is in a tailspin. There's nothing, I mean, we are still left with the fact that 75 million people voted for Donald Trump 15 million more than voted for him four years ago. 80 million people did vote for Biden, that's very true. But what this means is that we are an incredibly divided nation. Oh yeah. It, it, right? And right. That this, is, this is not by any means over, even if, even if Trump is impeached. We are left in a situation where we have, I mean, across the, across the board, across the nation, Republicans won overwhelming numbers of races at the state and local levels. And it, it's not a situation where I came out of the election feeling hopeful or feeling like this was a blue wave. This was like a real you know, sigh of relief for me. Like as, as a person of color, I was terrified, right? And what we saw happen on the 6th of January just reconfirmed that in all kinds of ways for me. The fact that there are threats being made on all 50 state capitals Right, the, the rise of insurgency, the fact that we are seeing such commitment 
not just to Trump as an individual, but to this kind of ultra right wing fascism, right, to, to a willingness to take up arms for this kind of, right, it's a, a, a cult at this point. I think that we can openly call it that. I mean, we, we really need to really talk very seriously about this, right? Oh yeah, you, you do. And that's the reason that if you go to downtown Indianapolis, our state troopers are on high alert in a state that he won. It has a Republican supermajority. If you listen to the audio of those people that stormed the Capitol, they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. They were asking, where was Pence's office? And now that we're getting non-class or declassified information, it looks like they missed him by less than 100 feet. I don't know what would have happened there. When people have talked to me, and clearly there have been a lot of people who've called me, um, this, these numbers are equivalent to calling after George Floyd. And, and a lot of people are just bewildered. They, they don't know what to say. And I, I remind them that during our protest during the summer, there were not people flying Biden flags or storming with Biden hats on. This was directly related to leaving a rally where the president of the United States spoke at the end, other end of Pennsylvania Avenue and encouraged people to, quote, make their voice heard and go there. Just You're stop. absolutely right. You're Stop. absolutely right. 70 some million people on election day voted. But but I want to get to, to this point. This is a internal Republican Party decision that they've got to make. <laughs> I'm not going to be involved in that decision making. Many of the people listening to your show are not. They've got a real issue. They had this issue. And this, if you study the history of their party, they've had this issue in 68 when they went with the Southern strategy. They had this issue whenever they went with the Tea Party, well, with the Reagan 1980 kicking off his campaign in Yazoo City. Um, Mississippi and talking about state rights. They've had this as an issue whenever they they were all happy when the Tea Party helped them retake Congress um, when Obama proposed uh, Obamacare. And now they've got another problem. So they've had a, a, a tendency in their party to have uh, groups come up that want to challenge their party. Now it's incumbent upon all their leaders, all the way from your local county commissioners, all the way up to the president or to the uh, leadership in the Senate and the House to determine what they're going to do. Because you are one million percent right. It's not going to go away. I just don't know where it manifests itself politically. Um, clearly, uh, folks are emboldened. Uh, there are people that probably thought that they were doing the right thing when they stormed the Capitol. Some posts on social media have indicated such. And I think that if they, if they believe that, it's going to be hard for them to go back and just fold their tent and say, okay, we did that on January 6th. Now we're done. I believe that members of Congress, at least on the Republican side, that will have future town halls are gonna to have to prepare for protests at their town hall meetings with people coming forward to their offices, field offices, um, the district offices had, uh, had better be on additional alert. But I think politically, um, I don't believe that they're gonna go away as a, as a unit. I don't know if this is gonna mean coming back as a third party, but the titular head of that party once again would be Donald Trump. And it would be interesting to see how far the Republican party goes uh, with that. As an aside, well, everybody's paying attention to all the insurrection uh, within the internals of the Republican Party. When they got together recently, a lot of the Trump loyalists were reinstalled with their hands on, on the levers of the Republican National Committee. So please keep that in mind as you move forward. You know, one of the things that has truly for four years perplexed me, Robin, is where does the power from Donald Trump come from? He seems to have GOP senators, congressmen who have been in office for 20 and 30 years backpedaling as if they're novices on, on the Hill. And the other thing is kind of a follow-up to something Amrita had mentioned. 
we did gain seats in the House or, or in the Senate. How do we keep those seats now that we have them? And also, how do we gain more? Well, I think Donald Trump appealed to the um, base instincts of some people that had been felt left out. You know, if you're an auto worker in Lorain, Ohio, and your plant is closed, you're not going to blame yourself for the fact that the Detroit designers didn't give you good designs or that your cars couldn't be competitive. You're going to blame those folks in Mexico that took away your job. If you're a Western Pennsylvania steel worker, you're not going to blame the archaic and, and the antiquated systems that are in place to make steel at, at some of the steel production facilities that we have. It's easier to blame the Chinese for dumping steel. So across the country, whether it is along the border with Mexico or people who were lost jobs, I mean, look where the battleground states were this time. They were right here in the Midwest with the exception of Indiana, I mean, in Illinois, but Wisconsin and, Wisconsin and uh, Michigan, Ohio somewhat, Pennsylvania was a true battleground. This is all part of the industrial um, might of our, of our nation. And a lot of people in those states have taken it on the chin. I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is quite frankly, we face maybe earlier than predicted, but by 2050, all predictions are that we'll be a majority minority country. So you come down as a candidate for president on your very first day and you accuse Mexicans of being rapists and criminals and those things to gin up your base. So then your, ba your base is, is already kind of had that kind of as a binary uh, thought process, but now you've got a titular head at the leadership of your party saying that. Um, I, I, I believe that some of those emotions were already there. I believe that they have been emboldened. But once again, I'm not saying it's great. I'm just saying this is an internal Republican Party problem. And I'm glad to see that the Biden-Harris campaign did something that we did when Franco Bannon ran, and we did in, eight, in 08 with Obama here. And that was we decided to, we made our run at, our, at trying to bring people in that we thought we could bring in. But we didn't spend a lot of time trying to bring people on that absolutely were adamant they wouldn't support any of our policies. Instead, we went overtly and tried to take people that should support our policies and get them to the polls. That's why you see Georgia was very, very competitive. But that's also why, M. Rita and everybody, you saw elections get into the 80 millions for Joe Biden. Um, the, the folks that I feel sorry for, quite frankly, are we made history. I mean, if any of us had to take a test, and color in the dot of the state that produced a Jewish United States Senator and an African-American, very few would color in the one that is Georgia. They haven't even been able to celebrate that victory because the fifth they won late in the evening and the sixth, all this, all this uh, calamity started in Washington. But I would say that, that we need to continue to grow our base at the same time, acknowledge somewhat uh, some of the things that are going on. I think Scranton Joe, Lunch Pail Joe, Firefighter Joe, I think that resonated with some voters who did not vote for us in the past that believed in Joe Biden. But right now, I think the issue within their party is they have to figure out how are they going to deal with this extremely um, right wing fringe element in their party? Are they going to bring them in? And if they do, then we will define them quickly as well. That's the elements of their party. Well, and I mean, I think that you've hit a couple of things right on the head, Robin, right? That you know, people keep saying that Trump has, you know, caused this division or led, the, I'm like, no, 400 years of American history led us to Trump. Trump simply exploited what was already very much here, right? I, I'm a historian. So I'm like, I, I'm, a I'm a historian of slavery, right? I mean, so mm -hmm. these things have, have been here for a long time. He saw them, he exploited them. He was able to pick up on these, these, in, these elements these feelings, these, you know, and he was able to very, very, very intelligently manipulate them 
and inflame fires that have long been brewing, right? But the, and these elements have long been in the Republican Party. They were perhaps pushed out to the fringes for a long time, but um, you know, economic issues, like you said, plant closures, all of these things have coalesced in ways, and he's been able to bring them together, right? Um, in, in manipulate them in ways and COVID and other things have exacerbated them and brought us to boiling points um, in really, really unfortunate ways. Absolutely. One of the things that I, I wanted to ask you about too, though, that it's come up in a number of conversations um, on different uh, news media shows and also social media as well, is this, even if Trump is impeached, what is to stop, say, his son from making a run? in four years and continuing this really unholy path that we find ourselves on, right? Well, nothing, nothing could prevent that. I just don't think that the, the vitriol and the style of Donald Trump is readily transferable as easily as it sounds. First off, if we do our job right, if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris do their job right, uh, we will be dealing with a administration that will have a track record. And so, Right now, we have nothing to go on. Right now, the only record to the Trump people is that the election was stolen. Well, let's give Joe Biden and Kamala Harris four years to make inroads to people. You know, when you're standing out there and you're building a road and you're seeing improvements made, and when you see infrastructure improvements made, when you see folks that, you know, a commitment to 100 million vaccinations in 100 days. So if he falls short and does 97 million, are people really gonna be upset? I mean, addressing an issue that's affecting everything I think that's something to keep in mind. That's not readily transferable. I would say, though, you're absolutely right. I mean, this phenomenon of, of Trump and his supporters is something that, that uh, the Republican Party's got to deal with. It's very interesting. Many of the leadership of that party, keep in mind, over 100 were voting to overturn the election. Yes. They were voting over. These are, you know, these are not people storming the fence with Kevlar on or coming in with bear spray and those people. I'm talking about these are folks with ties on and, and suits on on the floor, prepared to overturn the election. Right. So you already had that there. there. Nothing demonstrated that more than that. It's the first time in American history we've had record numbers of that. You had general assemblies trying to go back and re, re, uh, remove their electors so that they could put in Trump electors to vote. So you had those kind of things going on, which would made for a, a crazy situation. But yet, when it got down to it, remember the chance of the video. It was hang Mike Pence. It's where's Mike Pence? So I'm not sure that that transfers to Republican benefit as much as this is a phenomenon solely wedded, and you were right, solely wedded in support for Donald Trump. I'm not sure that that would transfer even to his own kids, because if they did, they would have to invoke many of the things that he believed in. I would think first question any interviewer would say is, well, where do you disagree with your dad on substantive issues? Was your dad wrong on this? Was your dad wrong on that? At least that's what I would be doing to try to drive that wedge between where their father was and, and where they as a candidate, as a family is. Also, um, you got people that want to run that are sitting right in that Senate. And I still believe that when the smoke clears that 17, at least 17 will come over and vote to impeach. And I do believe that you will see people that will move forward and say, and let's go ahead and extend his right not to be able to run for office. But to your listeners or anybody that's, that's whatever online, remember that can only happen if Republicans do that. So that ball is in their court again. Hey, Robin, I'm uh, squirming in my seat here. Yeah, I'm going to let um, William jump in because I think that I really am, I really think that the GOP is responsible for bringing us to this point as well. At no point in the last four years have they ever reined Donald Trump in. They've never stood up to him. 
they have allowed him to, you know, exercise his narcissism and his megalomania, and they have brought us to this dangerous flashpoint of, of insurrection. So I blame them entirely. They have never once stood up to him. And, and for the few that are now backing away, so what? You know, I, they are responsible. So what, what we, where we go from here in terms of the GOP, I don't know, but they are, they are entirely responsible. I know that William is itching to ask a question. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass the baton like in a four by 100 relay race over to him and let okay. him get in on this really wonderful conversation that we're having. Uh, thank you, Amrit. I was also itching to jump in and agree with you because I've been saying for so long that the mess that we're in now, even going back before January the 6th, I laid that entirely at the feet of the Republican party. Trump was just a vehicle. But uh, Robin, Trump has been described as a threat to national security almost since the beginning of his presidency. Even though they shut down his Twitter account, even if he's banned from ever holding federal office again, as long as this guy still has a functioning blowhole, he's still a threat to national security. Would you agree that they need to find a way to muzzle this guy uh, on the national stage permanently? Now, I don't know exactly how they would do that, but uh, fortunately for uh, Joe Biden, I do have a couple of suggestions. One okay. is, is they could cut a deal with this guy and allow him to either avoid jail time or keep all of his ill-gotten gains uh, in exchange for an agreement with him to go back and, and over a period of time that he convinced all of his followers that the uh, election was legitimate. They could cut some kind of deal like that with him uh, to keep him and, and also that he not speak on national politics ever again. I, I don't know how legal that would be, but you know, would you agree that they need to figure out how to shut this guy down? Well, first off, I think that uh, to go back, you have to assume that he would hold his part of the deal. Um, that's not always been the case on anything. Um, I refuse to to let people say that, or agree with people who say, uh, we can't do anything with it. We just did. We won the election. And we won it, quite frankly, overwhelmingly. I mean, it's amazing when he got 302 electoral votes, he deemed it a landslide. We get 302, million, 302 electoral votes, and he says that it was fraud. Um, I, the fact of the matter is, these are voters of, America, of Americans. Georgia, of all states, counted their votes three times three times. And, and actually, Joe Biden picked up votes. Wisconsin, they spent three and a half million dollars up there on recounts, and we picked up votes. Michigan didn't change. Pennsylvania, yeah, you're right. I went to bed. That's my home state. I went to bed election night like, are we serious? We're down by 680,000 votes. And then Joe Biden wins by 80,000 votes when it's all said and done, or 90,000 when it's all said and done. I don't know that you could uh, do anything other to him than what I think is going to happen. You know, it's if you don't have a conduit. I mean, he's had he's had overlapping media branding. Those those of you who study media branding would understand this. He starts every day as the president of the United States. So there's an entire press corps dedicated to tracking what is the president of the United States up to today. So that's a tremendous benefit for somebody that wants immediate media coverage. Then he parlayed that on top of amazingly discrediting that same media, saying it was fake news, and then bouncing that off over to social media. And building a responsibility there. So if you add in the social media underpinning, the very fact that he is the president of the United States and commented on, on MSNBC from 6 a.m. until 12 o'clock every night, the guy had all that basis to start with. So Air Force One, I guess we'll take him out of here on, on Wednesday. He's out of that. So there will be a skeleton press corps dedicated to him. 
now in social media, yeah, he'll continue to do that, but he doesn't have his Twitter account anymore. Some of the other accounts he has access to aren't there anymore. I still think, not not to, to be anything prophetic here, I don't think that we're done yet with this presidency. We still have a few, we still have two more days. And I just don't believe it's just going to be routine. It could be going on right now while we're doing this show. Um, but I don't believe it's just going to be routine. He wanted a military send-off. He didn't get that. Um, I don't know what more we're going to have from him, but I do not believe that it's over with. As far as in the future, um, you know, comebacks are very, very hard unless you can mobilize people. Mobilizing his base will require him to either spend money, but he has about $150 million, they estimate, in his legal defense fund that was never really used in the courtroom. Or he'll have to he'll have to overtly be involved in the political process. Remember, remember when he ran last time, he never got more than like 30% of the vote. But the problem was there were 16 people running. This time, if there aren't as many people, there will be a, a contrast. But it's a very dangerous thing for the Republican Party to make him their standard bearer. Um, you asked, what can we do? One of the most important things we have to do is get ready for 22. 22 is the watershed. The, the November 22 elections will determine the future of the Biden administration. It will determine whether or not we still have a Democrat leading the Senate, whether we still have a Democrat leading the House. If we do not win in the 22 midterms, which are very hard to do, very hard to do. Most presidents um, lose seats during the midterm. It's crucial that we already start, start soon as we hear, so help me God on Wednesday, that we turn our attention to 22, because that's where we'll see if any of this pressure from outside manifests itself. And it will be in taking out on his side, taking out Republican senators who did not stand with him. That'll be the interesting piece. In our last few moments, um, a couple of things that I, that's still resonate with me. William kind of brought it up. There are still so many people in the GOP who believe in the lies. And it seems that no matter how much they see the truth, they refuse to believe it. And I don't know if they ever will. And the other thing we haven't scratched on it are the blacks in the GOP. <laughs> nice yeah, reaction to that Still in the sunken place. <laughs> <laughs> so just a couple of things for you to comment on. Well, I think what you, what you are, are talking about is exactly right. I mean, there, but there are some rock rib Republicans that will never, ever, let's take the whole conspiracy thing out of it. They'll never support Joe Biden. They just won't. I mean, it won't. Where I think we have to begin to move away and better define the Republican Party is these are not just folks that are on the lower strata of income, the lower strata of education. There were people that were arrested the other day that were retired uh, military officers. There was a doctor arrested, professional people arrested, a West Virginia state legislator arrested. This is permeated all the way through their party. And I, as a, you, you mentioned at the onset, trying to be a strategist, part of my job as a strategist is to define who you're running against. Now, if you want to run for office in Monroe County, and absolutely, after seeing the insurrection at the Capitol, want to be 100% affiliated with that party and put your future on the line with that affiliation, then that's going to be on you. And it's incumbent that either you disavow it or you, or you, or you bring it back. You're right. We're, we've talked all about this party. I never thought that I would dream for the days of Jeff Sessions. But after Bill Barr, you're like, oh, my gosh, can we have Jeff Sessions back? No, we don't need him back. You're seeing McConnell now modulate, but he forgot what he did to Mary Garland and, and Barack Obama. So I don't know that I, I'm going to use very, very, I, I used to do this all the time with our team. It is not about, oh, we're going to mete out this punishment or we're going to, no, we have to, Clarence and everyone, inform. 
we've got to stay on the information. We've got to keep reminding people that this is what happens when you have an unbridled party with a leader, a charismatic leader at the head of it. There have been other times in world history where there have been political parties with a charismatic leader, and that didn't turn out too well for the people involved or the country. So we have charismatic leader at the top of a party. If this is who you, Carmel executive, want to say, I'm a Republican, because you can't say, I'm a Republican, but I hate Trump. Well, no, wait, 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 wait. I thought that he's the leader of your party. The other thing that I've been saying to some of my Republican friends, when the doors are being kicked down, I don't remember any, unless you all have video of it, any member of the House or Senate staying in their seat to welcome these people to come in because they were part of their party. I don't remember that. I saw lots of Trump signs going up the stairs, but this is a, an issue that the Republican party's got to address. Are they going to, to do things that benefit our nation? Or are they gonna be wedded to one individual as the leader of their party? If they are, then that's, that's what we have to define. Now, I wanna say one thing about the people that stormed the buildings. In their minds, in their minds, I'm not saying in our minds, in their minds, they were storming the building because they thought government had come out of, become out of touch. I don't know how four years of Barack, I mean, of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to bring them back to feel like government's in touch. But I don't know how what Donald Trump's going to say off the grid and off the screen, because I still don't believe the guy slinks away quietly into the night. For our listeners who are just joining us, we are speaking with Democratic strategist Robin Winston. Um, he is a longtime skilled political strategist here in the state of Indiana gives wonderful political advice to his colleagues and clients. And of course, you, our listening audience, um, we've been having a terrific conversation about um, <laughs> where does the GOP go from here <laughs> as we um, see the waning hours of the 45th president, who, in my opinion, should have been frog marched out of office after he incited an attempted coup d'etat on the 6th of January. But yes, frog marched. He wanted a military Usherance out of office, that would have been exactly how he, a military parade, he could have been ushered out of the Oval at gunpoint. That's what I would have done. But you know what? That's just me. Um, so a, a question to you, Robin. Well, first of all, I, we've talked about Georgia a few times. Kudos, all kudos to Stacey Abrams, who I absolutely adore. Um, it, I mean, I fangirl Stacey Abrams. Like I was living in Atlanta when she made her run for the governorship and when it was stolen from her. And I think uh, all of those folks rue the day that they stole the governorship from Ms. Abrams because it's now karma, you know, karma has come back to come back to bite them in the rear end and very hard because she has worked extremely hard to do exactly what you've been talking about, about how every vote matters. And, you know, that, the you know, she has worked incredibly hard to put Georgia in the column, not once, but twice. And Georgia has not been able to celebrate, like you said, um, because of, of because of all the shenanigans that have been going on. But let's talk about another um, woman. How effective do you think Nancy Pelosi is going to be going forward, um, you know, into this next administration, um, under given these new circumstances that we, that we see ourselves in? Well, I think she's going to be very effective. First off, uh, I had the chance to, to be with the speaker. She was here in Indianapolis for an event with Andre Carson. Now, here's my, here's my Joe Biden story of the day. Here we go. I meet her. And um, I introduce myself, and you know, you're you're in a grip and grin, so you usually don't remember people's names a lot when you are the gripper. And I said Robin Winston, former chairman of the Democratic Party, and all that stuff under Frank O'Bannon, and did my little you know business card thing. And we stood there together, and I said, "Well, you were very involved with the California Democratic Party," and I said, "You were you were the executive director." She goes, "I was also the chair chairwoman." I said, "Okay, 
I said, I knew that too. I said, but you're the speaker of the house. She goes out on the, out on the reception and everybody's doing the introduction of who's here and who's here. And she recognizes the present chairman of the party. But then she pirouettes around and says, and don't forget chairman Winston is here, former chairman of the party. And I thought, wow, you remember that? So she is, she, from members that I know that know her, she has paid attention to members. She's listened to members. She's got, you know, Steny Hoyer and Clyburn right there, but she's got Akeem Jeffries sitting, uh, sitting in the wings, I think will be a tremendous speaker someday if, if we win these midterms and continue to move on. Uh, we're gonna have a tremendous visual at the State of the Union. You're gonna have Joe Biden speaking behind him is gonna be Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi uh, to tell you how far our country's come. She didn't fool around on the floor at all. She put up the magnetometers. If you don't go through them, you get a hefty fine. If you continue to not go through them, you get another fine. If you don't go through them, they'll move to expel you. So she's taken that language. She got rid of the head of the Capitol Police because there wasn't enough security around. She went out the other morning to speak with the troops that are now surrounding the building. I think she'll be very effective. And I think knowing that she has a Senate leadership that's on her side is beneficial. I just wanna go back to Georgia for one, one minute. I made a note over here. Georgia is a relic of the vestiges of racism. My mentor in politics, one of my main mentors in politics was Maynard Jackson, the former mayor of Atlanta. Uh, I supported him when he ran for Democratic National Committee chair. I talked to him probably about once every two weeks when he was doing that. We hosted him here in Indianapolis. But he would, if he were alive, he wouldn't mention how the runoff was designed by Georgians to make sure that a person of color couldn't win the nomination of a party. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to get 50% of the vote. Now, if they had not had that, Purdue would have been one of their nominees. He would have been their nominee election night. He'd have won the U.S. Senate. But because of their efforts to make sure that we could not win a Senate, uh, could not win statewide offices, governor or, or senator or any of the things, you had to get at least 40 percent or you had to get a majority of the vote. They didn't get it. So therefore, Reverend Warnock and Ossoff went to, to run off elections and then they won. And it's amazing. I've not heard. Now, maybe you've heard it. I've not heard one word about voter fraud in Georgia after the election. But when Trump was running, it was voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. I have not heard one word about that. So he picked up two seats. One, one, the pastor of the, Dr. King's birthday is today, the pastor of his home church. The other, the youngest U.S. senator since, Joe Biden. At 33 years old, John Ossoff is the youngest United States senator that we have. So I think our, when you ask about Nancy Pelosi, yes, she is a tribute to where we have been as a party and are going. But we've got some tremendous opportunities to move our, our state ahead. Last, our sister... Uh, Stacy, remember the governor that everyone is now talking about, Kemp, was Secretary of State when she ran, and he personally prevented over 53,000 African Americans who should have been eligible to vote to vote. So exactly. 22, I guess, will be driving down 75 on our way to Atlanta to campaign for her or hosting her here. But I hope she wins for governor and does win. I have a, I have a question for uh, Robin. This is Clarence, and Robin, thanks for joining us today. I want to go back uh, to the storming of the Capitol. Uh, I think this will be a case study for decades to come. And I think even uh, in the fall semester, plenty of historians, professors will tailor a whole class on how we had a breakdown of such magnitude. But one thing that I want to uh, ask you, and I've asked previous guests this question, why are the participants in that quote unquote protest rally deemed patriots? Whereas if they were African-American, Muslim or whatever, they would be deemed Thugs. And, and people have alluded to that. I've, I've seen talking heads on TV talk about the contrast between uh, a white 
citizens that protest versus black or brown citizens that protest. When are we going to get a handle on this and when is that going to get um, uh, turned around? I, I think that uh, what you're dealing with there is their own branding. You know, they flew the American flag, but they also walked through the rotunda with the Confederate flag. And when, when you're thinking about, about those things, uh, keep in mind that they were, not, they were not patriots. They were not people that should have been able to even get to the building to get there. You know, if that had been 40 students from Howard making their way, just 40, and they and left there saying they were gonna storm the Capitol and cause insurrection, do you, you think they'd even made it to the bottom of the first flight of stairs on the West Wing? Probably wouldn't have happened. So I, I think that part of that was just the, the edict that they came there with. Um, they flew their flags. That's their own personal branding. As I said before, some of them um, feel that that was their right to do that. Some of them feel that they were right to do that. Some, you know, I'm, I don't look at the effect. I look at the cause. And the cause of this came from decades of constantly anti-government fervor that manifested itself on our Capitol the other day, you all. I mean, we had, you know, just as recently as this summer, we had threats, 14 people I think are arrested right now for threatening to kidnap and try the governor of Michigan over some mandates that she made designed to protect our public health. But those people that did that in their mind, in their mind, were, were doing the right thing. They felt strongly about that. Somewhere along the way, I think that voters have rejected it and have said that it's the wrong way to go but no, I would not deem them as patriot. The patriot should be the officer, the African-American officer that led them away from going into the Senate to the uninformed. It looked like he was running from them, but actually he was drawing them away up the stairs and down the hall so that people could escape, namely the vice president of the United States could escape. Um, but, I but clearly this, is, this is, uh, was an insurrection. Uh, windows were broken. The building was looted. But the resilience was, guess what? We came back later that afternoon and voted in the Electoral College, seated them, and made Joe Biden and Kamala Harris president and vice president. I just want to say one sentence. I just sent out my annual Martin Luther King card this morning to some, some folks. Um, and, I, and in it, it has a very simple sentence. Election has consequences. It contrasts John Lewis being beat in 65 at Selma as he tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge with John Lewis crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1995 with, uh, with Barack Obama and Mrs. Obama walking on there with Reverend Lowry. So things can change. I do believe that they will change. I believe this is a major mistake uh, that the Republican party has to figure out how to deal with. They've got part of their brain directed to how are we gonna deal with this growing, growing um, um, constituency, population wedded to, and then they've got to still try to govern in Washington. Uh, I believe that it puts McConnell in a tizzy, which is fitting and that's great. And I'm glad to see that they have to do that. But the reality is it's still, come on folks, it's their issue. They have to get, they have to figure out how they're gonna address this. These are not people that nobody left there saying, oh, it's for Biden, but I have a Trump flag over my shoulder. No, they were for Trump and they and clearly they voted for Trump and probably indirectly uh, may have voted for some other Republicans as, as recently as November. You know, we had a lot of legislators uh, who obviously uh, believed that the vote was rigged, uh, didn't wanna believe the, the election results. Uh, how are they going to be looked at in history, do you think, um, as the GOP goes forward? Uh, a lot of them still have power. A lot of them still have a lot of these insurrections, insurrectionists that are uh, following them. And I, I know that, you know, Wednesday we've got a new leader in the, in, in the executive branch, but 
even, I know the GOP is divided, but that's going to that's, that's the bad apple that's going to bring the Senate or the Congress down. So how are we going to deal with those people who could have been part of the insurrection? Well, first off, they lost. That's the first thing, which probably doesn't make them feel well. But part of this is also, and you all are keenly aware of this, um, part of this is a result of how their districts are drawn. They look around, if their district is 70-some percent Republican, their biggest threat is not in the fall, but their threat is in a Republican primary. So when you look at people that got defeated in, you know, in primaries that were Republican leaders as recently as Dick Luger getting defeated here, titular head, uh, very well respected, but got beat by Murdoch in a Republican primary uh, here in 2012. We went on to win the Senate in 2012 with Joe Donnelly. This has been going on in their party uh, quite a bit. Uh, they've lost in Virginia. Uh, they lost Eric, who was a member of their, of their leadership. He got beat in a Republican primary. So I think that their biggest fear, let's just bring it back home, their biggest fear is they don't want to have the word former before congressman or senator before their name. So I don't know that they're really going to do anything with that vote against seating Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, except use it to fend off potential Republicans in their primary. What I don't have, what they don't have in their party at all is a kind of a Rockefeller wing or an even more modern day of Bush wing of not, not G, uh, George W, but George H.W., wing of their party. There is no moderate wing of their party that, that is saying, why don't we modulate some of this behavior? You either, you either have to move to the right or the far right in order to secure your place as a Republican nominee. Uh, that's why I think in so many battleground states, they continue to lose at the state level because they have to move so far to the right to assuage those concerns. This is the thing that I'm concerned about, Robin, that I think uh, Cornelius was getting at is the fact that as information is coming out about the insurrection, there were lawmakers um, inside the Capitol who were giving reconnaissance tours. There were people within the GOP who were clearly aiding and abetting, right? This was an inside job. We know that this didn't go down without help. I mean, they found that panic buttons inside Congresswoman Ayanna Presley's office had been disengaged, right? This, this was done with with inside help, but there were people from within the GOP who aided and abetted. So we have, you know, elected officials who were in on this attempted coup. And so that that itself is something that has to give us deep pause, that there were off-duty police officers from all over the country who, who flew to DC to participate in this event. That I'm not surprised at at all. But the point is, is that we have elected officials who are who are going to be going to work every single day who were part of this and that i think is what you know cornelius was getting at and what i certainly have been thinking about every single day what you know what do we what do, how do we wrap our hands heads around that people keep talking about the fact that you know i don't think racism is the, the vestiges of racism you used that phrase a few minutes ago i don't think racism is on its last legs i don't think it's anywhere near dying or dead I think that it has uh, only increased and gotten worse, right? Um, because in fact, right, around 2040, 2043, we are going to become, um, right, you said a minority majority nation. And so we're seeing these, you know, we're seeing white folks become incredibly angry and, you know, very, very like um, outwardly aggressive about that. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, and this is the kind of behavior, right? Armed behavior, right? The Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville, the Proud Boys marching in the Pacific Northwest, et cetera, that's happening. And now the insurrection attempt in DC itself. But people keep saying, oh, it's uneducated people. It's these hillbillies, et cetera. Baloney, it's elected officials, it's business leaders. It's, 
It's university professors. It's people of all classes and backgrounds from the wealthiest to the most poor. It cuts across all stratas and backgrounds. And now we see that it's even, it's elected officials, it's everybody. How do we deal with the fact that people who have been voted into power to speak for all Americans are now pre precipitating this kind of lawlessness? We are living in a failed state. How do we deal? Because really, that's what this is. You know, we keep saying, oh, it happens in other countries. It happens somewhere over there. No, it's happening right here. I think that um, you're right about everything you just said. You're exactly right. Um, I, but, I, but you have to come back to the electoral process for these folks. You know, I've been up and close and personal in this world on these things. And unless we inform and keep pressure on them and show them. So, you know, take the photos and the video from the insurrection and just basically say them time and time again. So you're supportive of this because your policies and your actions on the floor seem to indicate that you're okay with that. You didn't vote to remove. You didn't vote to impeach. You, we couldn't even get the future attorney or the soon to be attorney general of this state to sign on with other attorney generals to criticize the insurrection in DC and the storming of the Capitol. So I think shows like this, uh, keeping people informed, not letting it go away, staying on top of it, continuing to remind people of what we were dealing with, and then reminding people that all this is going on while our nation faces a the other eye. Everybody talks about you know inauguration, impeachment, um, insurrection. I talk about the biggest eye, which is illness. We have over almost 400,000 people that have died of a virus that we need to address. If the same intensity level had been used to address that by this administration, we wouldn't have so many people that are dying, so many people that are sick. We didn't have the pandemic. We wouldn't have our economic might uh, very much crushed. But you're right. I have always learned in, in politics, you have to make sure that the elected official is constantly reminded of both past actions and their future actions to make sure that they're aware of it. To let them off the floor or let them off now? No, you don't do that. You have to, I would love to know, both US senators, what is your position on this? Not just, we can't condone violence, but what are you gonna do beyond that? Are you gonna strengthen our counterintelligence capabilities? Are you gonna harden some of our, of our assets? Are we gonna clearly repudiate this type of leadership at the national level? What are you gonna do? I think that's what we should be doing constantly over and over again. Folks, think about this. If that had been armed protesters that looked like us storming the Capitol, where would we be watching and what would our nation be saying today? What would Fox News be saying right now? What would those things be? And anybody that if members of the, of the Congressional Black Caucus, any member condoned that if it was flipped, they would be screaming from the top of, the, of any tall building in their community. They'd be talking about it. So I think it's important that we continue. I intend to. I asked my Republican counterpart on television the other day. I said, really? So you're fine with that? Well, that was not, that was a fringe element of our party, but they all had your party's leaders hats on. They were flying American flags. They had just left a rally by that. So, you know, if you begin to think about it, if you begin to tie that together, somebody's got, somebody's got to be held accountable. I don't want to, I'm not discounting anything about the, the vestiges of racism. I know it's there. I know it's there, but it kind of, this is what I've asked my friends time and time again, where's all this anger and hate going to manifest itself? And it showed that on January 6th. Well, you know, I also look at that and I think to myself, is it possible that we would see another civil war? And if so, what would a new civil war look like? Um, 
those were angry people in in, in that insurrection. And, and as Amrita mentioned and you mentioned, you know, from congressmen to senators to lawyers to doctors to judges to everything under the sun. So when you have that many people who voted for President Trump, um, it's really scary the direction this country is going. Um, do you think it's possible? And if so, what would a new civil war look like? I'm, I'm sorry, sure I'm that... asking questions unmuted. So, Rob, so Robin, I, I, I apologize. Um, as we looked at that insurrection, one thing that was obvious, there were very a lot of angry people. Uh, do you think it's possible that we would have another civil war? And if we did, what would it look like? I think that uh, I never want to discount anything, but I, but I, you know, let's let's go back on some history here, folks. Um, in '95. I was with then Governor, no, then Lieutenant Governor Frank O'Bannon. We were doing a housing announcement here in Indianapolis. We got our squawk from the state troopers saying there had been a, a disaster in Oklahoma at a federal building. The, the people that came to that were the Michigan militia. That's McVeigh, that's Nichols. The Muraw building that they blew up was home of the DEA and the FBI that's, that handled the Waco situation with David Koresh and his founders. There was such anti-government um, fervent then. I talked to Frank Anderson years later, who was the U.S. Marshal, African-American, went on to be Marion County Sheriff, U.S. Marshal. He was with Timothy McVeigh in his final hours. And, and the hatred towards government was there. So I'm not so sure that the disdain for government is going to dissipate to the point that we couldn't prevent it. What we have to do is get our hands on the levers of power to confront it. There are now 25,000 troops on the ground in the District of Columbia today. Um, people aren't playing around this time. So I think that's part of it. But could it happen? I don't know that I don't know that it will happen, but I'm sure that the disdain for federal state facilities is why you see people in Ohio. Mike DeWine, the governor there, has put plywood over his buildings. Downtown here in Indianapolis, uh, well, our Anthem's building's got plywood all over its buildings because of fear of, of, of unrest. So I think that that won't go away anytime soon. I think we all have to be more vigilant. I, I am, I'm particularly concerned about, you know, where we have gatherings of people that may not be in sync with some of these folks that storm the building, have to be, even from our churches, from our events, a day like King Day, it's, 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 not, it's not good that we don't have it because of COVID-19, but King celebrations would have been a heck of a lot different today if we had not been restricted by the number of people that could have been there, particularly on what happened on the 6th. So I just think we need to be more cognizant. I don't believe it's going away. I think it'd be more individualized or group wise, but you've got 14 men getting ready to go to trial in Michigan for trying to overthrow their government. I still believe that the disdain for government will be there. You know, I think that um, Cornelius raised a really relevant question. I mean, I've long been wondering this slide towards fascism, you know, dictatorship that Trump definitely desires in the, you know, sort of mark of, of Hitler and Stalin and, and, you know, Putin and others. I mean, he has that streak. That's the authoritarianism, the dictatorship style. He's a megalomaniac, right? He's a narcissist. This is definitely um, what he's been sort of leaning towards and heading towards for a long time. And the way he's tapped into sort of the fears of the base, the way he's stoked those fires. But the fact that the media, members of his own party and others have refused to call out white supremacy for what it is. And the fact that when when black folks come together to protest, it's immediately, right, we're, you know, we're rioters, et cetera. But when, when white supremacists come together, 
um, they're protesters and they're not domestic terrorists, which is what, what, that's what it is. They refuse, words have power and meaning, right? And so I think it's really, really important that when the media and, the, and, and, and police with, uh, powers, which are an arm of the state, don't call white supremacy what it is and they don't call domestic terrorism domestic terrorism, it's problematic, right? When, but when BLM comes out throughout the summer of 2020 to protest police brutality, you know, we're thugs, you know, we're terrorists, et cetera. But when, when white people storm the Capitol, oh, you know, that's, that's a protest. That's not a protest, that's armed insurrection and that's domestic terrorism, right? And we're, yeah. I think like, I mean, these are the things that we really have to think about moving forward. Like, I mean, if we want to avoid civil war, right? Then we really need to have some really frank, open conversations and deep, deep, I mean, we have to really deeply think about these things as a nation, right, Robin? I mean, but, and I also think that um, we also have to stop and consider the fact that the GOP still has a strong, a stranglehold, right, on judgeships, right, all over this country, and not just the Supreme Court, but all the way down, right? They've been power packing the courts from the bottom up for years while the Democrats have kind of been sleeping, right? We've kind of right. been We've been lax on this. So they've got six of nine of the main court, but all the way down, federal courts, all the way down. So when you look at governorships across the country, when you look at state houses across the land, we have, we have a problem. And you're right, 2022 is going to be super critical, not just, again, in D.C., but from the local up, this is something that we have to really be thinking about. If we, we, if we, want, to, if we want to start to take this country back, and we can't be pandering to the center. We have to make sure that we understand what it is we want our party to be. And we've got to start making sure that we bring people into the right message, right? Because we got a problem. Well, that's why, that's why um, I have devoted my time so far and maybe in the future to being in government and politics. And, and here's why. There's going to be a world of difference with an Attorney General Mary Garland and an Attorney General Bill Barr there actually will be a Justice Department Civil Rights Division. Nobody's gonna come into the Oval Office priding themselves on how to subjugate and, and crush voter suppression or make voter suppression rampant in states like they did under, under this administration. We won't have a, a, a HUD department that turns its deaf ear on, on things. We won't have a Department of Education that will basically try to make our schools mini Walmarts. We won't have those kind of things going on. I think the, the policies, that's why it's so important that people be involved in the political process. Imagine Georgia with the Stacey Abrams as governor. Even when I was when I was working with Franco Bannon, Mel Carraway was the first African American state trooper commandant or commander. That made a difference in how those troopers related to people. So it's it's important that we move ahead. Also, going back to holding people accountable, if you remember, Todd Young called for a massive expansion of the number of federal judges. You're right, Senator Young. Let's do it. But let's see if you're going to vote now for the Democratic nominees to be on those federal benches. You certainly said you wanted to make sure that they were going on. You even said Indiana needed more federal judges. I agree. Now let's see when it happens. I mean, I was part of the effort to get Tanya Walton Pratt, an HBCU grad, on the Supreme on the on the federal bench here. Her rulings have been vital on some things that have that have gone on in our state. So we have to stay involved. Shows like yours have to continue to educate. We have to vote, and we have to remember that Dr. King said, "Give us the ballot, and we will make change." Well. Give us the ballot and we'll make change. We can't turn cynically away. Little small thing about Dr. King and LBJ and all that stuff. It was LBJ, the tall Southerner, that called Frank Johnson, the Southern federal judge, and said, I don't want anybody to mess with on that cell in a Montgomery march. But it was coming from the White House. Instead, we had a White House that said there were good people on both sides of Charlottesville. 
So I do have some hope and optimism that just with policies. I don't think Kamala Harris is going to sit by in a cabinet meeting and have somebody talk about how they're going to eradicate funding for HBCUs, cut funding for school lunch programs, diminish opportunities for education opportunities or housing authorities, cripple the Department of Justice, like we all know went on in cabinet meetings during this administration. But I will end by saying this, um, the Republican Party can't in one gesture welcome these people, like my, my uh, commentating buddy on TV did when they were winning and they were so proud of the Tea Party and it was a grassroots. And then years later say, no, we don't want anything to do with them. Can't have it both ways, folks. So you either are part of it, they're either part of your deal and you accept them because they're not knocking the doors down to be part of our party. So you all have to figure out how you can, not you all, but Republicans have to figure out how to, how to deal with that. I think, I think if I'm running campaign ads in 22 and I put up stark images of people kicking down doors and saying, you know, Clarence Boone believes this is okay for Indiana. I'm not sure that goes over very well in most households in Indiana. So they're gonna have to figure out how to deal with that. We have to remember that they overturned the Voting Rights Act. So we, oh, have, yeah. we have work to do. Well, on, on that note, uh, our esteemed guest as always has informed and just inspired us. But before I hand it over to the anchors to uh, wrap this up, Robin sent me a missive early this morning, as he alluded to earlier on Keen Day. Uh, and basically it says that today we honor a legacy. And it was personalized. It said, Dear Clarence, on this day when we honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., please take a few moments to remember that elections do have consequences. Pictured below are photos of the late Congressman John Lewis being attacked by an Alabama state trooper as he and other peaceful protesters attempted to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in some Alabama in 1965. Please contrast that with the, uh, with the above photo of President Obama, Mrs. Obama, Congressman John Lewis, and others crossing that same Edmund Pettus Bridge in 2015. For those of us who have served or will serve in government in the future, voting rights are crucial to the underpinning of our democracy. Dr. King was right when he said, give us the ballot. Yes, give us the ballot and we will change America. Let us all redouble our efforts to make a difference. We owe that to Dr. Keene and others who blazed the trails that we walked on today. Sincerely, Robin Winston. And we're and Robin, just to let you know, we're going to make every effort to get this posted on our website um, after when this when this particular broadcast is archived and posted. And with that, I, I yield back to our two <laughs> capable and, and highly charged anchors. Amen. For helping us dissect this contentious 2020 presidential election. We want to thank our good friend, Democrat strategist Robin Winston, an accomplished business leader and skilled political strategist who for years has provided political advice to his colleagues and clients and to you, our Bring It On listeners. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program or an event or happening in the African-American community that we should know about, let us hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is William Hosea. Our consultant and WFHB news department director is Cade Young. Our program engineer is Chantel LaFontent. Our original theme music was created by Jamel Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Cornelius Wright. And I'm Amrita Myers. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB.
You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.